Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, one of the podcast hosts, and I talk to authors of Yale University Press books that deal with art and architecture, and it is architecture that we will talk about in this episode. I have two wonderful guests who have a combined eight decades of professional experience in the field of architecture. Vitold Rybczynski is a trained architect who has practiced architecture and also taught it at McGill University and the University of Pennsylvania. He's written about architecture for a wide variety of publications, including Slate, The Wilson Quarterly, and The New Yorker, and is the author of more than a dozen books on the subject. His most recent book is The Story of Architecture, which we published in November of 2022. Hugh Pearman was the architecture critic for the Sunday Times in London from 1986 until 2016. He also edited the Journal of the Royal Institute of British Architects from 2006 until 2020 and has written numerous books on architecture as well. His latest book, out just now, is titled About Architecture, An Essential Guide in 55 Buildings. So Vitold's book, The Story of Architecture, follows a narrative thread of building and buildings through history from the Stone Age to today. Hugh's book about architecture is arranged in 11 thematic sections based on building type, such as houses, museums, and shopping malls, with a handful of cases to exemplify each type. They're books that have some interesting similarities, as well as many interesting differences. Welcome to you both. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So let's start with approach. It seemed to me that creating a narrative of the history of architecture, as you did, Vitold, um, seemed to foreground the structures themselves, while, of course, not ignoring the people who built them and used them. Um, Whereas your approach, Hugh, writing about architecture as kind of spokes extending from nodes of human endeavor that resulted in their building, foregrounded the people whose needs gave rise to the different building types. Does that idea seem true to you both? And uh, if so, can you talk about those two approaches? Well, in my case, I did want to to focus on the buildings. Uh, That's what architecture is. If you were telling the story of painting, you would focus on the paintings. Uh, So in that sense, I, I agree, the buildings are are spotlighted and I only, I picked a select number of buildings from any particular period because I I wanted to talk about the setting of the buildings, the architects, the clients who are of course very important in architecture uh, and the sort of context of the building. So uh, while I focus on the buildings, I do try to place the building in its historical period. And I think that's a, a big part of the book, as it as it indeed is a big part of architecture, because architecture is, unlike the other arts, is not self-contained. It requires, first of all, buildings are so expensive, uh, an architect can't just decide to build a building the way an art painter can decide to paint a painting. And so uh, it requires clients, it requires society to want to spend a lot of money. Uh, it may be an aristocrat at one point, but later on, it's really a, a social decision. So it's a social art in the sense that it reflects the, the desires of society as a whole. Whereas um, 
in my case, I was trying to do a, um, a, an almost absurdly simple thing, actually, which was to um, look at the uses of buildings. And this comes back to that point about, um, yes, the, the, the people who make them and why do they make them and how do they make them? Um, and I'm not looking at the uses of buildings in an attempt to find a link to the formal qualities of the buildings, because in some cases, uh, the variety is so great, and that's quite deliberate, uh, the choice of, of, of great variety, that you can't say, oh, well, that building looks like that because it's that type of building. You know, a, a petrol filling station is not the same as a bridge in transport section or an airport or, or whatever. Sometimes that creeps up on you, though, because um, in my industry section, there's a run of three different factories which do show the development of that kind of building from the 18th century um, up to the uh, up to the um, early 20th. So sometimes uh, it can catch you out by surprise and, uh, and a formal quality emerges. And I suppose also one can also, of course, talk about um, uh, auditoria performance buildings because uh, there's a certain given about bringing a large number of people together in a space to hear words or music which is pretty much eternal so there are examples like that but by and large I'm, I, I prefer to take the view that this is interesting why did it happen uh, who were the people involved why did it turn out looking like that and I suppose part of that is a is a desire to uh, avoid avoid going too heavy on style. Style is there. I sort of assign each building a style, um, which is always arguable. But there we are. So that I suppose, from my point of view, was just a way into the subject. I wonder, Hugh, if you found as I did that. One of the things that drove both the choice of buildings and, and the, the organization of the book is when you have a lot of repetitive buildings, you, you want to keep the reader involved. And so you want to create variety, both in terms of sometimes comparing buildings, sometimes just focusing on one building, sometimes focusing on an architect. I found that I, 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 I wanted to create some flow rather than otherwise it would end up sort of like a dictionary or an encyclopedia where you just go ABC and I I wonder if that was if you found that sort of driving some of the choices I think there was um to be entirely pragmatic about it um there were certain architects and certain buildings which I felt ought to be in the book and uh, should be there by hook or by crook uh, and I think we share certain of those. Mm. But there are other buildings I wanted to throw a little hand grenade into the operation and, 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 and surprise people a little bit. So, for instance, um, if you're doing a section on retail, as I, as I do on shopping and so forth, it's all very well looking at, um, you know, Middle Eastern markets and amazing Parisian department stores and the Galleria in Milan and uh, and so forth. But I did want to put in what I think is one of my favourite buildings in the book, curious enough, which is an Amazon distribution warehouse. Um, really just because if people are expecting fine architecture, then that is not fine architecture. And uh, I think this is, a, this is a subject which is 
uh, can be dis debated endlessly. Uh, but it's where we all shop. Uh, we shop in places like that. We never go inside them, but that's that. That's what happens. And so it seemed to me it was a valid thing to have there. So yes, um, I think that I wanted to interrupt the rhythm a bit here and there with uh, with projects such as that. I had that same experience because I I devoted a chapter to the Lincoln Memorial, which is hardly ever included in any architectural book, and yet it's it's a for most Americans, it's really an extremely important building. It's a building that Americans take their children to see, you know, when they're visiting Washington. And that was the same notion to shake things up, to to kind of not to get into a groove where you almost predict what you're going to look at next, but but to remind people of of the enormous variety that architecture holds. I wonder if it all, what do you what do you think about um the what constitutes a building really in this context i mean in my case it's it's and i suspect yours yours too it's it's quite broad i mean the, the subtitle of my book is an essential guide in 55 buildings and i ummed and ahed about that when the publisher suggested that there are 55 case studies so that is entirely correct are they buildings uh, a lot of them are buildings but um one of them is a canal running across um, the su southern France, for instance, it's an engineering undertaking from the 17th century. Uh, another is the uh, entire city of Isfahan, uh, another another favourite of yours, I think, too. Um, so I think that the notion of what makes a building, I found an interesting one, and I didn't want to, con to confine it just to buildings, the whole civic section, which is to do with, with, with urban form as much as with, uh, as, as with buildings. And finally, I was very keen indeed and succeeded in the end in having a section on gardens, the architectural garden, if you like, from um, Renaissance times up to the High Line in, in Manhattan. And there was a bit of resistance from some people to that, that somehow a garden wasn't architecture. Um, and I, you know, I, I have a feeling we might both disagree about that, that yes, of course it is. <laughs> what do you think? No, I don't, actually don't disagree, but no. certainly in, in my book, I, I was, if I had opened the door up, I, I would have run out of space. It would have had to be twice as big. So I, I was actually much narrower than you were in, in my choice. Not so much because I didn't think that, for instance, vernacular buildings are, are not architecture or that a garden is not architecture, because I actually agree with you, but it would have, it would have, open things up too much in the in the in my thoughts of the book so i i actually restricted myself to what most people sometimes call capital a architecture the the buildings that are special and not always big but but often monumental i I suppose the Bath, the closest I come to what you've been talking about is the buildings in Bath by the Wood Father and Son. Um, although I, I, for me, that was a, a, a sort of architectures, architects venturing into the real estate field because I, I paired it with the Palais Royal in Paris. Um, but otherwise I tended to, to stick to the sort of formal large, buildings of, of importance 
rather than, although I, I think there was a, I included Mendelssohn's department store and uh, some housing by Oud, but essentially I was looking at the sort of monumental buildings, large and small, uh, that, uh, that I felt I could, I could handle. Once I opened the door, I would, I would, I, I felt I was going to get, I was going to lose control of things. Now that is an interesting subject, isn't it? Because what do you leave out? Uh, and how do you discipline yourself to, to, to do that? And it's a, a perennial problem for for everybody, and I, I was breaking my rules all the time. Um, I now realise I wasn't so clear about this when I was doing it. But I suppose my equivalent of your of your housing in Bath is uh, uh, Fitzwilliam Square in Dublin, as an example of yeah. Georgian town housing. And of course, that immediately breaks my rule because that section is going to be houses, not housing. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so Fitzwilliam Square does consist of a lot of how uh, a lot of individual houses <laughs> in a in a terrace, but. Uh, I was stretching my point there, and after a while, I decided not to worry about that. That uh, uh, that 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 that's the way to do it. And similarly, with uh, I came up with a what you might term a, a banal shopping centre in Hong Kong. Uh, it's a it's a Jody partnership uh, uh, um, building in Hong Kong, which I I saw when I was out there, and. Um, Again, not fine architecture, but for me, it was an excuse to talk about that retail tumult of Mong Kok in Hong Kong and how such a building can erupt in so many more levels than we ever get in, in the Western world, really, uh, for, for retail. We never normally go above four, four levels there. I think something like 15. <laughs> uh, <laughs> ver vertical shopping mall. And so it's there for its uh, extraordinariness rather than for rather than you know i'm not saying it's palladio obviously it isn't um uh but it's that kind of uh that that, that kind of contrast i suppose which is uh um what's at the heart of things here i do agree with you about the choice issue because that obvious that in writing any book about architecture unless you're writing an encyclopedia probably many volumes you have to choose one of the things I think we both made the same choice uh, is is not to devote space to unbuilt buildings. Uh, yes. Because there's a there is a a trend, I don't know if it's a modern trend or if it's always been the case, but uh I mean Palladio included unbuilt houses in his book and never told you they were never built. So I suppose yes. it's an old belief, but uh the the other thing I sort of did, I wasn't religious about this, but I, I didn't want to include a lot of private houses, um, mainly because they are private, which means people can't see them often. I mean, it, there are exceptions. Uh, and, and it seemed to me they were almost a different category. And I, I, do in, I did include several, I think two or three private houses, but I, I, I didn't want to let them take over, which they, which they do in some histories where you get weekend houses that are considered somehow as important as a city hall or a cathedral. And I, I simply don't think they are. I think there's a kind, I think what a building is, is actually quite important. If it's, if it's a seat of government, it, it's a intrinsically more important building than, than a, a private weekend house. 
That is true. I suppose it comes back to the the that 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 old uh, hoary old saying: um, if you can design a good house, you can design a good anything. And and, <laughs> and the and obviously the Alberti thing about a, a house being a city in miniature. Um, so there is that temptation, but it's quite true. They're very seductive, aren't they? One-off houses. Um, they can they, they can take over. I was trying to choose some 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 less obvious examples there, but there is a one very obvious example from Philadelphia, which you'll be very very familiar with, of course. Yes, which I actually lived in the same neighborhood, so I I, I passed by Hill. that house uh -huh. often. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was a joy to talk to Denise Scott Brown about that, um, actually, mm -hmm. um, just to take take me through the genesis uh, of all of that. Um, at the same time as uh, she was fighting to stop her National Gallery here in London from uh, being vandalised. We we tried, but we failed. It is being vandalised, I'm afraid to say. Yes, I, I, I completely agree with you on that. I, it was especially as it is really one of ben, the Venturi's best buildings. Uh, yes, and the, so, and the only building in the UK. That's true, yes. And grade one listed. Uh, which is, you know, landmarked. Uh, how they were allowed to do it is just one of those scandals, really. But there yes, we are. I mean, yeah. So the question of what to include and exclude is, of course, as you've said, driven uh, in large part by needing to make a readable, coherent book, which you both have done in spades. Um, but do you, do you think it it also reflects a deeper difference in philosophical approach, for example, form following function versus form following construction? And do you think that that is significantly informed by the different paths that you each have taken to, to uh, the field of architecture? Well, can I come in on this? Because I have a confession to make. Do you want to hear my confession? <laughs> yes. My confession is that I found enormously helpful. And this, I think, is a, a kind of parallel with the practice of architecture that I was given a very specific um, constraint, really, a set of constraints, in fact, uh, by, by, by the publishers, by, by Yale. And this was so helpful, I can't tell you. This book, as, as, as you said, Vitaldi, you know, they, they, can, they, can, they, they can go on and on and on. They can get longer and longer and longer. Um, Yale said um, 256 pages, uh, this number of illustrations, this number of words, uh, over to you. I went, right, um, what can I do within those parameters? And what I could do within those parameters is exactly how it came out. I could have no more than 11 sections if I wanted to have a minimum of five case studies per section. Uh, I could have no more than one illustration for the introduction to each of those 11 sections, because the uh, photo budget had been used up for in, in all the others. And it, interestingly, it might feel very, very limiting, but I went at that and it fell out like a hand of patience. That's how it came out. And it's rather like if you're asked to design something, just design me something, anything you like, just, just, just design me something. And you go, well, what, where? And you say, oh, well, what I want is this very specific thing, um, and it's to be um, 
up against this wall and there's a road running across the front of it and there's a, there's a <laughs> there's an airport nearby and suddenly you've got parameters and you can you can design that can't you and i found that 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 those imposed limitations for a certain kind of book with a certain number of pages and images for a certain price was incredibly helpful and almost to an extent started to dictate the structure of the book and i was very very happy about that isn't that strange Oh, totally agree. I think I, I hadn't thought of it as clearly as you just said it, but I think it, I, I, I totally agree. It was very much, uh, I don't know whether you, I, I hadn't planned the book completely in the sense that I knew what each chapter was going to be about, but there was this limit of length and the number of illustrations. Yeah. And then I, I, looking back, I mean, there were chapters that got dropped. There were chapters that got added. Uh, yes. The only one I would have added, but I thought of it much too late, was something about Paul Rudolph, because I realized I had yeah. not dealt with him, and he's an interesting architect. And But other, otherwise, yes, it, it, it sort of all comes through at the end, because if it's too long, you, you have to drop something, and then you sort of have to think of, well, what what could be dropped, what isn't essential, and it, 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 it is an excellent discipline. The rules kind of emerged. I mean, yes, the thing was planned out to be done like this before those constraints were, necessary constraints were, were dropped. So it was always going to be this, this structure. At one point, it was going to be like 10 case studies per section. Um, and that would have uh, been a, a massive undertaking. Um, or obviously, one can have, you know, there are 11 building use types uh, obviously you can have 30 or whatever however many you wish really it depends how detailed you wish to get for each one but there was it the rules evolved during the writing and during the editing process actually and that was incredibly helpful too let us have each one of the case studies uh, per section from a different country of the world for instance that is um, uh, admitted to in the at the beginning of the book. But what is not admitted to, and it's another confession here, and nobody seems to have spotted this one yet, is that no architect, no matter how illustrious, gets more than one building in the book. Um, so if there's going to be a Le Corbusier, and there is, it's not the Villa Savoie, it's, um, it's, it, it's of course the church at, uh, at Ranchon. And uh, if there's a Mies van der Rohe building, and there is, it's not um, the Seagram building, although I wrote the Seagram building and then later chucked it out. It's the Tugendhat house, the pre-war house in, uh, in Czech Republic. So um, that was another, that was a secret discipline that no architect gets more than one building. And that, I suppose, was another factor of the structure of the book, that it was, um, um, you had to have a discipline. In fact, I had to have about five different disciplines in order to, <laughs> in order to make it work. So uh, that's how it came out. So um, yes, so some very humble architects get uh, get one building, and uh, and some very illustrious architects indeed also get <laughs> also get one building. Yes, I didn't. I, I did. I must have say I did not have that rule, and it was only at the end that I decided to count, sort of how many buildings different architects got. And there were architects who got a whole chapter, 
yeah. to themselves. And then there are other architects who get a couple of buildings. I think there there weren't many, and I I was. I was I I at the end I just counted because I was interested of sort of who got who got who were those people who got several buildings and uh, you know somebody like Alto got I think a couple of buildings and Corbusier and Mies um, but also earlier architects uh, I think Palladio got two buildings or was it three I can't remember so uh, yes in my case I didn't have that kind of rule, uh, simply, I suppose, because there were moments where architects sort of were, in, where these buildings were important. And uh, I, I just, like you, I, I, I knew there were buildings that I had to include, that I wanted to include and that I, that needed to be there. But then that, but then in between you were, you were sometimes searching. And as I said, I just, they were, people I forgot <laughs> that, <laughs> that somehow didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't so much that only forgetting. I, I don't, you mentioned this and I, I had this sense of at one point of, I don't want to just cover the United States over and over. I need to, I need to either, that's why I did Louis Kahn in Bangladesh rather than uh, the Salk Institute, for instance. Yes. It, yes. Uh, I just, there were, there were points in the book where I was, trying to show how architecture became global. And then I, I really needed to, to get away from America and, and Europe and, and show that these people were working all over the place, which was sort of a new thing for, for Europeans and Americans to build in many other places. Not always a good thing in my opinion, but, but very much what was happening. Exactly. And, um... Yes, I certainly, there was a, a moment where I was adjusting the content of the book in order to get a, a greater geographical spread. Um, and I think that given, you know, another 25% uh, pages, I would have done more in the Southern Hemisphere, for instance. Now, obviously, the history of architecture is written in the Northern Hemisphere, but uh, nonetheless, there is uh, some absolutely fascinating um architecture has happened in, in 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 the south and um yes a bigger book i would have i would have gone more into those i suppose so the, the, i have some i have some regrets there certainly i did have a a, a relief valve mechanism however to um to the structure which was that the introductions to the sections and in those i was able to um talk about many more buildings, many more architects, or indeed some of the same architects more than once. So the reference, the, the, you know, some architects mm. do need to get more than one, more, more than one mention in the book, even if they only get one case study uh, each in the book. And uh, yes, I did need that relief valve uh, just to be able to expand beyond the, uh, the self-imposed straitjacket, if you like. I, that's actually a very good device. I wish I had thought of it because my book is divided into five or six sections, but I could have had a kind of introduction to the section which would have allowed me to, that, that kind of freedom, and uh, rather than, than, go, than simply moving from one chapter to the next. So I think, because I noticed that in your book, it's a very, it's an interesting device and it does give you that, it kind of loosens everything up for a, a little bit. 
it 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 gives me the the ability to um discuss the evolution of the type in in, in every case and then the uh, as as a cheat it, it then allows me to bring in just one in some cases extra project so uh, lena bobardi's uh, modern art museum in sao paulo is there as the introductory image to the museum section even though it isn't a case study one of the five case studies in that section so um more more cheating i'm afraid going on there <laughs> yeah. a frightening building by the way those paintings sort of levitating is, is yes I can't imagine on, on, looking at art that way um for the for the listeners you have to imagine if you do not know this museum that uh lina bobardi uh, uh italian brazilian architect um mounted uh, the paintings, old masters amongst them, on sheets of glass, and the sheets of glass are set in in concrete blocks, standing on the floor. Um, and so you see the uh, see the backs of the of the paintings as well as well as the front. And uh, yes, it's off putting, isn't it? It's it it's uh, it's uh, it's a strange. It's almost like they're people walking towards you. Yes, <laughs> robots. So I wonder if you would uh, discuss, we've sort of been approaching this a little bit in the last bit of conversation, but discuss some of the buildings that your books have in common. Um, the Le Corbusier's church at Ronchon has come up and Alto's town hall in Sainatsalo, Finland came up. Also the Acropolis, the Sydney Opera House, the CCTV headquarters building in Beijing. Um, is Is there a sort of is there an architectural canon of great buildings that, you know, you when both of you went into writing your books, you thought, well, these six or ten or however many cannot be left out? I think there was an architectural canon for centuries, and it, it did change. Uh, it So in, I, I don't know if a canon is a canon, if it changes from one century to the next, but uh, that... Whether there is a modern canon is a good question. I'm not sure if I think of, I, I spent so much of my life teaching. And certainly if I think of the way we teach architecture today, we don't teach a canon. Uh, I think there was a canon in the 60s, particularly of modernist buildings, the sort of pioneering buildings. Uh, those were the buildings that when you graduated, you went to, Europe or, or North America, and you went to look at those buildings because you had studied them but not seen them. And so that that was certainly a canon. Um, today, I'm not sure. Uh, overall history, I think, I mean, looking at our two books, you, you certainly, as you mentioned, there are all these buildings that are that we haven't that we've looked at in common. I, in my case, it was partly because they were important in my story and partly because they were simply very good buildings and and so they illustrated all the best aspects of architecture and then in the case of something like the parthenon it's a building that influences architecture for centuries and uh, arguably until the modern age i went to look at it le corbusier before me went to look at it and for all I know, and I hope young architects are still going to look at it. And so it has an influence of one sort or another for for an awful long time. And in, in that sense, it's a, it's a very special building. Uh, it's not simply an, a nice old building. It's in, 
I believe the root of Western architecture is really starts there, which is quite amazing because usually the beginnings are crude and you know ill-formed and then you get more refinement whereas architecture starts kind of at the top and continues from there which is which is unusual in the arts one of the things which intri i agree entirely on that one and uh, uh, and that's precisely why i've got it there at the start in, in my case uh, the section on, on on civic buildings another uh, point of potential debate there for instance um is it's is the Acropolis, that is all the buildings on mm. Acropolis and Building Bottom, is should one regard that as being civic or should one regard that as being religious? Because in uh, in in my same book, you've got Angkor Wat in Cambodia, for which many of the same things can be said, but in that case, it's in the religious section rather than the civic. And I think one of the reasons I did that for the Acropolis was just what you said there, which is that it has influenced particularly civic buildings so much down the centuries that it almost sort of has become civic by default, I suppose, uh, as a result of mm -hmm. as a result of all of that. But um, yes, and it's from there that I move on to one which which, which again we share uh, again, which is Isfahan. Uh, in your case, um, different emphases, which again is fascinating. In my case, I'm regarding it as being an example of urban planning. Uh, which one can do because it's a particular ruler who takes over at a certain time and uh, and produces uh, this extraordinary place for the relatively short time that it's uh, it's his capital. Um, but you know, if you do that, which is what I did, then you miss out other things like you know the mosque, the amazing mosque, um, the market, the you know, everything else uh, which uh, that that stands for there. Um, so. I think we use some of the same uh, canonic buildings for slightly different purposes. Would that be, would that be fair? Do you think? Yeah, probably yes. No, because I I certainly agree. I I I about your your point about the urban design versus the the buildings themselves. It's yeah. uh, I I was I wanted to include Isfahan initially because it struck me that Persian architecture. It's one of the great architectures of the world, for one thing, and it's not known enough because, particularly in modern day Iran, it's just hard to get there. Yeah. Uh, I guess the previous generation of architects knew it because they were all invited to Iran by the Shah, but yes. today that's changed. But what's what's so striking about the Persian architecture, as it is about, I think, Japanese architecture or Chinese is that it's so different. The, the assumptions, the working assumptions are just entirely different than, than the Western architecture. And, uh, if, you know, we build domes, but we never consider the exterior of the dome to be very important. Uh, I mean, the, the idea that you make a dome out of colored tiles, it just changes the, the thing entirely. And it's, it's only after architects start to travel in that part of the world that that actually happens in some churches. Uh, but, you know, the Roman dome, the Pantheon dome, is, is I think it was originally gilded. So perhaps it was treated differently. But, of course, the gilding disappeared. People just stole it. Um, but there is a, there's a, this wonderful difference in, in Persian architecture. I mean, it's all about surfaces and 
decoration and and it you know there's nothing like pilasters or there are columns but they're certainly not as important as as western columns so it, i found it fascinating for that reason it's just a different way of looking at architecture compared to western architecture of that period so can you imagine what it would have been like for those first portuguese explorers who stumbled across angkor what yes. <laughs> in the jungles of cambodia where there was no no domes no arches um actually openings pretty small all around but an architecture of of, of shaped solidity if you like uh, yes different altogether and, and and it just so completely blew them away when they first saw it that at the same time as they we were building our, our cathedrals and temples and so forth over there in the jungle they were producing architecture like that um and up until that point when the portuguese explorers arrived no one had a had a clue really it's 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 also striking that the the one thing that seems to be a common trait is is axes and symmetry. Yes, that those are those seem to, and it's one of my, I think, uh, arguments with modernism is that they kind of threw out axes and symmetry, and they that was a rash thing to do because those are sort of two of the most important tools of the architect and actually they're they're universal tools so they're probably somehow very deep in the human psyche because they seem to trans to to transfer from one culture to the other quite easily which other things don't necessarily do it's a very good point uh, and i hadn't considered that before but you're right that is that is um I'm, I'm st well, as we speak, I'm staring at a, at a picture of Angkor Wat, which shows the grand approach and the central uh, stupa and then, uh, then the pinnacles around it. And the whole thing is so wonderfully bilaterally symmetrical. Um, but yes, that could be Versailles almost. And of course, I would, as, as I was speaking, I realized that, I mean, two of the, the, the two great, two of the great moderns, Mies and Khan, of course, didn't dispense with symmetry they both used it i i was in new york the other few weeks ago and i my room happened to look out on the seagram building and of course that has that great axis leading straight into the front door with the pools on the side you know it's a very it's not it's not even classical it's sort of timeless because as you said that that device is used over and over by different cultures Do you reckon, uh, I was just going to say that uh, we, we're deciding why we choose certain buildings. And one of the things I said uh, at the start of the book was that it has to be a personal selection and that I perhaps sort of rashly said that you could do 12 different versions of, in my, of my book with entirely different examples. And following our conversation today i'm beginning to wonder whether i was wrong there whether in fact some examples demands to be there and in my case i suppose the one which most demanded to be there was um Cubizier's chapel uh notre dame du Eau at, uh, at ranchon and it's i suppose that's just personal because it was just such an extraordinary place when i went to see it which was gosh when 2003 or thereabouts during a heat wave it was 40 degrees and there was this extraordinary sense of uh, 
of, of calm and contemplation and, and sculptural form and going on around you. Um, and I felt, well, it, that has got to be in the book. And I, I think if I did do 12 other versions of the book with different examples, it would be very, very hard to lose that one. <laughs> but I think you're right. To, not entirely different, but they, but certainly different is possible. Uh, there would be some buildings that would stay, but somebody else or, or you at another time might have chosen some other additional buildings. I think that's re that's a reasonable idea. For my Islamic uh, place of worship, I chose Charles Correa's last building, for instance, which you'll be familiar with uh, in, in, in Toronto, the, Isma the, the Ismaili Center. I've, no, uh, I've not seen it. Oh, uh, well, that is, that is a, uh, the prayer hall there is, is, is just a tremendous place, which owes a lot, I think, to, well, I think I know, to, uh, to Frank Lloyd Wright and, uh, uh, and his synagogue, his glass, glass wall synagogue. Um, and yes, uh, so many fascinating details uh, about that. It, it faces Mecca, yes, but it faces Mecca over the North Pole. <laughs> uh, because that's the shortest route isn't that uh, things mm -hmm. like that i just find completely fascinating um uh but yes but also because it was charles's last building and uh, i met him there and he said yes this is my last building and uh, and it was so uh yeah choices like that it, it, there could be any number of modern places of worship one could choose instead of that but uh again there was a moment in my in my personal history where uh, I met Korea there and he said that and I thought that's someone I'm going to choose. So maybe we can we can finish up with a mm, a more general question um, that simultaneously looks back and forward maybe. Uh, you both discussed perhaps unavoidably the Roman architect, engineer and writer Vitruvius um, and I wonder what you think about the enduring importance of his ideas and the and the Vitruvian trilogy, or whether, given what's happened with modern architecture and everything since, that is um, of less importance, ultimately. The words we use are firmness, commodity, and delight. That's what we're talking about. Uh, the words we use are from Sir Henry Wotton, uh, an otherwise unknown um, uh, uh, diplomat and scholar. Um, who was translating Vit Vitruvius. Uh, my, my Latin isn't quite up to the original, unfortunately. Um, it's hard to get around that, isn't it? It really is hard to get around that particular collection of reducing the whole of architecture to three words. I, I'm not convinced. In modern times, go, uh, let me back up here. One of the things that I came across when I was writing about all these different historical periods is that, you know, just getting the building to stand up was actually not something you could take for granted for the longest time. Yeah. Uh, not only because of earthquakes and fires, but uh, the, it, I mean, just making a building and it's there and it's huge. And I mean, thinking of a cathedral or a basilica or, or those Roman baths, I mean, that alone was an achievement, and it certainly belongs in the trilogy. I'm not sure that's true anymore. We, we, it's a kind of platitude that architects could build almost anything, but it's true. Uh, no, no thanks to architects, but thanks to the engineers. Mm -hmm. It is possible to build anything. So we, we now, 
if a building falls, I think it's we we're shocked and and we should be shocked and it because it's so rare. It's not we don't expect buildings to, to just collapse. We but, don't, but, we, but 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 no, they they they, they mm. certainly don't do that very often. But what they do do very often is leak. I'm thinking that maybe fir yeah. maybe firmness mm. covers uh, not not having leaky buildings. Maybe. Mm. Uh, maybe. <laughs> I mean, what I, I, what, 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 yeah. What, what I did was just graft on three more, uh, and I'm not happy. I'm not, I'm not wholly satisfied with the three I did graft on. I said yes. Take those three. Take those three three words, and and then think about society, technology, and style. Um, uh, because the, I suppose it's because I've got this thing about the people who do the building, the people who commission the buildings as much as those who, who actually design design them. And so therefore, the society which produces the buildings we, we celebrate is, is, is another factor which isn't really discussed in, in, in the Vitruvian definition, is it? No, that's true. I think, I mean, the Vitruvian definition is Roman, and the Romans, of course, were, it was a, a, an authoritarian society, and there was, I think that's why it, his book sort of is so didactic, it, there are three ways of doing this and four ways of doing that, and it, it's all about rules. Um, one of the things that impressed me the most about Hagia Sophia is that it it really does represent a different way of looking at architecture. So, you know, in Hagia Sophia, if you want to put columns close together, you can put them two or three together, or or just one, or and they can the capitals can all be different. They don't have to be standardized the way the Romans did it. It's it's a kind of free architecture, and partly I think it's the result of Byzantine society, which was such a mixture of people. And they weren't, which Roman was too, but the Byzantine society was not under a stricture where everything had to be one way. Uh, there was no, for instance, there people dress, there was no dress codes as there were in Roman society. You know, you 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 couldn't wear a toga unless you were a certain kind of Roman. Uh, in in the Byzantine society, you could wear anything you wanted, and they that's why they had these incredibly colorful. Uh, colorfully dressed people, which you see in the murals and uh, men and women. And so there's a different approach to architecture, which is not the sort of regimented, regulated, uh, strict approach of, of the Romans, which is sort of what affects classicism for so long in Europe, in it's the more, West. It's a, it's a more organic way of arriving at your architecture, isn't it? Uh, I guess yes. here. It's uh, and I I, I I don't know to what extent it's important. Presumably not, but I, I do like the the uh, legend that it was designed by pagans, <laughs> um, undercover pagans is is, is what mm. I that, that it was, you know it was for the worship of the sun. Um, doesn't really matter. But um, one of the things which that brings up for me is. Um, change of use because of course religious buildings very often change uh, change their religions but also but also also their use altogether uh, and you see a lot of this uh, in, in in a sense it's a it, it, it's a huge vaulted space which could be it has been a secular building it's now back to being a mosque again it has been a cathedral um, there are buildings like this aren't there that can 
somehow seem to be able to shapeshift almost to, to suit the times and to suit the, the, the rituals and the customs and the uses of the times. Well, also that, as you said, that people realize this, having a big round room with a dome is with light coming in from above is kind of spectacular. And then over the years, we've built libraries like that and museums like that. And I mean, the, the basic capital building of states and the federal government in America is a dome mm. building, almost yeah. all of, there's a couple of exceptions. And, and Lutyens built a dome building for in India. So it's, it, you're right, there's, there's, it's, it seems to serve many functions somehow, and, and it obviously has different meanings if it's a house than if it's a mosque. And yet, that experience of the space and the light and uh, the way you feel, I mean, it could, if it's a railway station, it works too. <laughs> it, yeah, it, yes, sort of, yes. it doesn't make any sense, but it does, yeah. which is why uh, I, I agree with your earlier comment that form doesn't follow function. Yeah. Uh, we, we adapt to buildings and we, we find new ways to use old buildings and, or old forms of buildings that are perfectly acceptable. Thank you, Vitold, and thank you, Hugh, for sharing your knowledge and your perspectives. It has been fascinating to listen to you talk. It has made me want to go back now and reread both of your books. Um, the books we've been talking about are The Story of Architecture by Vitold Rybczynski and About Architecture by Hugh Perman. Thank you, Vitold. Thank you, Hugh. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Hugh. I've enjoyed this. I've, I've enjoyed meeting you and talking with you. So thank you very much. I have a very strong sense of imposter syndrome here. <laughs> Both of these books are available now wherever books are sold. Thank you very much for listening. And please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of this podcast, as well as information about all of our books.